0: Uh, be with you uh, here this morning. Uh, As I had just shared with you uh, a few minutes ago, we're continuing to uh, work through our study of uh, the book of Genesis, the latter half of it, basically. Uh, This morning we're going to spend time uh, working through verses 6 through 23 of chapter 39. So if you have a Bible with you or if you've got a Bible app on your phone, if you'd make your way to chapter 39, uh, if you need a Bible, there's Bibles on the tables around the room. Uh, Please feel free to get up and get one of those. If you don't own the Bible, please take uh, that with you. It's our gift uh, to you. So Genesis 39, uh, starting in verse 6. If you're able, if you would please stand in honor of God's Word. So he, that would be Potiphar, left all that he had in Joseph's charge. And because of him, he had no concerns about anything but the food that he ate. nor has he kept back anything from me except yourself because you are his wife how then can i do this great wickedness and sin against god and as he spoke to joseph and as she spoke to joseph day after day he would not listen to her to lie beside her or to be with her but one day when he went into the house to do his work And none of the men of the house was there in the house. She caught him by the garment, saying, Lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand and fled and got out of the house. And as soon as she saw that he had left his garment in her hand and had fled out of the house, she called to the men of her household and said to them, See, he has brought among us a Hebrew to laugh at us. He came in to me to lie with me, and fled out of the house. And as soon as his master heard the words that his wife spoke to him, this is the way your servant treated me, his anger was kindled. And Joseph's master took him and put him into the prison, the place where his king's prisoners were confined, and he was there in prison. But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison." And the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners who were in the prison. Whatever was done there, he was the one who did it. The keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge, because the Lord was with him, and whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Wow. That's quite a story. Uh, you know, you could go to uh, Netflix and probably find a story similar to that. Uh, you could uh, go in and to the store and, and find a ladies' magazine and probably find a story uh, similar to that. It could have been the subject of a, a reality television show. Uh, that story uh, has definitely, from my experience, has been found in the walls of corporate America. No doubt it happens in the halls of government, and sadly, sometimes it even happens in the recesses of the local church. And the reality of things, folks, is that temptation is everywhere, especially in our hyper-sexualized, our hyper-connected, our hyper-fluent, our hyper-polarized, our hyper-pleasure-seeking culture. And if we were to sit here for a few moments and and list the temptations that that many of us have to deal with... uh, the list would be probably rather long. There's the temptation of sex and power and money and pleasure and comfort and fame and approval and beauty and escape, and and the list goes on and on. And we all get that because every one of us have found ourselves either pushing against or perhaps caving into temptation, even though we know that that temptation that has come our way possesses the ability to destroy us, to destroy our family, to destroy our livelihood, to destroy our community, to destroy perhaps even our church family. And this morning, as we study God's Word, uh, we're going to discover that temptation is not overcome by merely trying harder, but rather by intentionally redirecting the focus of our heart. That's what we're going to discover this morning. Now, before we get too far into this passage, uh, I do have a, a, a disclaimer that I need to share. Actually, a second disclaimer. Uh, when, when I, or, or Pastor Ben, or, or Mike Bongo, has been tasked with coming and uh, preaching on a, on a given uh, weekend, uh, we uh, use a lot of different resources to help us. And obviously, the first place that we go is God's Word. And... Uh, you know, the first thing that, that any preacher is going to do is going to spend time, you know, first on our knees saying, you know, God, this is your word. It's much bigger than I am. Would you help me to understand what's inside of your word? You spend time reading it. You try to figure out what the big idea is. You, you try to come up with a, with an outline and things like that. And once you've done that work, then you uh, begin to turn to different resources that are helpful, uh, We read Bible commentaries that have been written by scholars who know a whole lot more than especially that that I know about the Bible. Uh, We plow through uh, Bible dictionaries and and Bible encyclopedias to be able to figure out uh, things about the culture and, you know, what was actually going on in this city at that time. Uh, We access sophisticated and very expensive, actually, Bible study software and, and online resources that the church has uh, allowed Pastor Ben and I to, to purchase and, and for Mike Bongo to be able to use. And then uh, many times what, what I, I know that Pastor Ben and I do, I'm not sure whether Bongo does it or not, is uh, we'll take time and, and we'll uh, read other sermons that have been written by other people about the particular topic. Or uh, Pastor Ben, a lot of times he'll watch uh, uh, videos of, of someone preaching a particular topic and uh, we do all of this because we believe that God's Spirit not only uh, speaks to us through our study of the Bible, but that God's Spirit has also spoken to other people through their study of the Bible. And, and most of the time, as we're gleaning all of this information together, and it comes from so many different resources, that it's not really practical to, to give credit to uh, a, a given person. You know, maybe you get this one idea out of this commentary. It's not real practical to to give credit, But there are some times where, where you stumble across uh, a work that is so good, so incredibly insightful, so inspired by the Holy Spirit that we end up relying on it more than other sources. And today is one of those days. Uh, the outline that I'm going to use this morning, uh, the big idea that I've already shared with you, uh, has been influenced by uh, an amazing message Uh, that was preached by a fellow by the name of Tim Keller. He's my uh, favorite pastor next to Pastor Ben. And uh, everything else inside of that outline, that that comes from from me. So uh, if, if you like the outline and you like the big idea and that works really well, Keller gets the credit. If anything that crashes and burns, that's totally on me, okay, this morning. So I just wanted to make sure that that we get that out straight ahead, because I want to make sure that I give credit where credit is due. So uh, let's get started. In this uh, particular passage, there's actually three temptations. Uh, The first temptation is the most obvious temptation, and that is a sexual temptation. But there's two other temptations which uh, figure very prominent in the story, but they, they don't just kind of pop out right away. You kind of got to read it a couple times till you, you see it. And, and the first one is this. It is the, the, the temptation of power. And then the, the other one is the temptation to despair when you think you've done everything right and God doesn't deliver the way that you expect him to deliver. So those are the three things that we're going to look at this morning. We'll start off with the uh, temptation of power. If you recall from last week, uh, Pastor Ben explained that there was this Egyptian by the name of, of Potiphar. He was the uh, the, the captain in the, the pharaoh's court, made him basically a high-ranking government official. And uh, Joseph is bought by Potiphar. He's basically uh, a slave. But Joseph has been so incredibly faithful that Potiphar has uh, put him as the overseer of absolutely everything that he owns. Now, this is pretty remarkable because Joseph is a Hebrew. And as such, he is of a different faith and a different culture than Potiphar. Where Joseph worshipped the, the single god of the Jews... Potiphar worshipped the many gods of the Egyptians, and, and the one god that he really worshipped was, was actually his boss by the name of Pharaoh, who to the Egyptians was, was the primary god, and all the other gods that they had kind of fell under Pharaoh. Now, you've got to think about this for a moment. Potiphar is completely trusting Joseph, a man of a different faith, a man of a different culture, with all of his earthly possessions. And you think to yourself, where does that actually happen? Where, where does someone actually trust someone who is a whole lot different than them with all of their stuff? Well, I have an example because I've seen it with my very eyes. One of my dearest friends is a, a faithful Christian man. About 20 years ago, he, he took a job being the second in charge of a, a multi-million dollar company located here in central Pennsylvania. It was privately owned, a family business and he has the position right below the, the owner of the business. Now, let's just say that the owner of my friend's business was not as nearly committed to Jesus and following Jesus as my friend was. And, or as my friend actually is, I should say. And, and the owner's priorities were way, way different than my friend's priorities. Yet the owner saw something inside of my friend. 20 years ago, he saw a a young man who was intelligent, uh, a young man who uh, appeared to have a ton of integrity, a young man who was faithful and wise, and so he hires him as basically the the chief financial officer of his corporation. And a few years into my friend's employment, uh, the owner uh, is involved in a a tragic accident, which... uh, makes him disabled, he's unable to run the day-to-day operations of uh, the business. So he turns the entire leadership of the company over to my friend. And over the uh, ensuing years, the years that passed, uh, the business thrives under my friend's leadership beyond the wildest expectations of the owner. And obviously, much of the success was a result of the faithfulness of my friend, not just towards the owner, but ultimately towards God. And the corresponding blessing that God poured out upon my friend, he also poured out upon my uh, friend's business, the owner's business, ultimately. And what's amazing to me about all of this is the owner is a guy who really doesn't care a whole lot about God yet he has been wildly blessed because of the faithfulness of my Christian friend. And that's the same thing that has happened here to Potiphar. Look at verse 5 of chapter 39. From the time that Potiphar made Joseph overseer in his house, or from that time uh, Potiphar made Joseph overseer in his house and over all that he had, the Lord blessed the Egyptians' house for Joseph's sake. The blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in house and field. You see, Potiphar and his entire household are blessed because of Joseph's faithfulness. God saw Joseph's obedience. And even though Joseph was living in a foreign land where people worshiped other foreign gods, God pours out his blessing on Joseph and it ultimately gets poured out on Potiphar. Now, what's interesting about this is Joseph has intentionally chosen to use the power that he has been given, ultimately, to bless others. And he had a choice to make when he got that power. And anyone who is given power has that exact same choice to make. And it's this. Do we forsake God and others and use power for our own personal gain? Or do we take that that power that has been entrusted to us and do we use it in a manner which blesses God and blesses others? Joseph chose the latter, and it resulted in great blessing to him and to the fullness of Potiphar's household. Now, I want you to understand something this morning. That truth holds true for every one of us in this room, because every one of us, whether we realize it or not, we are in positions of power. Some of us are in, in positions of obvious power. We have folks in our church family who are business owners and executives and, and managers and supervisors and product, uh, product uh, managers and project leaders, but also we have healthcare professionals, and counselors, and lawyers, and educators, and coaches, and first responders, and government workers, and teachers, and and public servants, all of these folks. And as a result, each one of us possesses a certain level of power that we've got to decide, are we going to use that power for ourselves? Are we going to use that power to bless others? Now on top of that, we also possess great wealth, which gives us great power. Some of you sitting here in this room right now and you're thinking, you know what, Mike, you don't know me very well. I do not possess great wealth. Well, let me hope, help to open your eyes here uh, this morning. If your household makes $35,000 a year, not much higher than the poverty level, you are wealthier than 60% of the balance of Americans. Think about that. $35,000, you are wealthier than, than 60% of the balance of Americans. If you make $45,000, your, your household income is $45,000, you're wealthier than 70% of all Americans. If you make $61,000, which, by the way, is the median income in, in Cumberland County and also in Dauphin County, you are wealthier than 80% of the balance of Americans. If your household income is $87,000 a year, that's a, basically what a police officer makes in Swadera Township. That puts you in the top 10% of wage earners in the United States. If your household income is $122,000 which I would imagine is that for many people in our church family that puts you in the top 5% and then there are some and you'd think that being in the 1% you'd have to have a super huge number it's a big number but it's not enormous it's $310,000 a year but here's the real eye opener folks. If your household income is $32,000 a year, you are wealthier than 99% of the world. Think about that. There's all this, uh, you know, jawing and complaining and, hey, let's get the 1% and stuff like that. You want to know something? You know, if you're after the 1%, you're the 1%. You know, the big guys, the the Bill Gateses and the Bezoses of the world, they're they're the crazy anomalies. If your household income is $32,000 a year, there are 99% of the rest of the world has less money than you do. You see, you and I possess great power with our wealth. Now the question is, what do we do with all of that power? Do we t- succumb to the temptation of, of power, especially as it relates to, to money and use it for our own benefit? Do we spend and spend and spend and spend until there's not a single dime left, unable to give anything to the work of God? Unable to, to be generous to, to others who, who come across our path throughout out the day when, it, when a need arises because we have consumed every single dime of what we've earned? Do we keep hoarding and hoarding and hoarding, unmoved by the immediate and obvious needs all around us and in our world and disguise our love affair for money by calling it saving for retirement? Or do we use the positional power that God has graciously given us to trample over others so that we can get ahead. That's the temptation of power, folks. Or perhaps we're like Joseph who uses his power and his expanding wealth to be a blessing to others. You see, so many times people think that, you know, if you want to be a blessing to others, you, you need to be a, a full-time Christian uh, worker. you got to be a, you know, if you, God's going to use you, you need to be a, a pastor or you need to be a, a missionary, or you need to work for some kind of nonprofit or something like that. But the reality is, that is not true. You just need to be somebody who decides to use your power to bless other people. You see, it's amazing. Joseph's not a missionary, he's not a preacher, he's just an ordinary guy got tossed into a well by his brothers. He's got a messed up family like most of us do. He ends up getting put in a place where where he doesn't even want to be. Who wants to be a slave? And yet he's faithful. And when he's given power, he doesn't hoard that power for himself. Rather, he uses that to be a blessing to others. And in the process, he gets blessed. But you see, power isn't the only temptation that we see in this passage. We also see uh, the temptation of sex. Look at verses 6 and 7. It says, So he left all that he had in Joseph's charge. That would be Potiphar. And because of him, Potiphar had no concern about anything but the food that he ate. Now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. And after a time, his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, lie with me now here we have all of the classic elements for an extramarital affair we have a young man the dude is good looking he appears to be uh, very kind Uh, he is uh, faithful he's intelligent Uh, In the words of that famous rock and roll theologian Elvis, he is a hunk of burning love. Okay, a hunk of hunk of burning love. I mean, that's what he is. And this guy's like the bomb. And then you couple that with a woman who is married to a, a powerful man, a man who probably isn't around the house very much because of all of the governmental duties that he has. A, a man who probably doesn't pay a whole lot of attention to his wife. Uh, you toss in the fact that that she's Egyptian, and uh, back in, in, in Joseph's day, uh, Egyptian women had a lot of freedom. You think of of women in uh, the Middle East right now, you, you, you think of, of ladies who were kind of uh, oppressed, and they're you know, they're sheltered and they're protected and things like that. Uh, Egyptian women were a lot like, first, uh, or like American women today. They basically had great freedom and opportunity. They could go wherever they want, do whatever they want, interact with whoever the, that they wanted to. And because of her freedom and because of Joseph's job, the two of them are interacting on a regular basis. And then finally, consider the fact that this woman has an enormous amount of power and she knows how to use it and that Joseph, while having great power, still in reality is a slave. And When you put it all together, all of those things, and you realize that this woman has so much power. I want you to think about this for a second. This is her come-on line. Her, 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 you know, trying to catch him kind of line here that, you know, you would use at a bar or something like that isn't like, hey, you're awfully handsome. Would you like to get to know me a little bit better? That's not the come-on line. What's the come-on line? The come-on line is lie with me. In, in the Hebrew, there are only two words. They're both imperatives. They are commands. She's not like making a request of him right now. She's basically saying, sex now. Right here. Right now. In this place. That's what she's doing. Now think about this for a moment. If you're Joseph, the temptation does not get any greater. I mean, he is alone with a woman who not only wants him, but she's got the power to fire him, to get him thrown in jail, probably actually to get him killed if he doesn't do what she wants him to do. Now the next part is important crazy. Look at 8 and 9. But Joseph refused and said to his master's wife, Behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house, and he has put everything that he has In my charge. He's not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except you because you're his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? So, what does Joseph call this act that the woman wants him to engage in? He calls it, a great wickedness and sin against God. Now, let me ask you a question. What exactly, and you've got to think about this for a second, what exactly is the specific sin that Joseph is calling out? Now, the obvious answer would be that it's the sin of adultery, right? Right? If you look in the dictionary, uh, adultery basically is having sex with someone who is already married. You're a person, and you have sex with a person who is married, basically. And while that appears to be the correct answer, I, I think there's actually a broader answer. And uh, as I was working through uh, studying for this, and I specifically as I was reading this message by Tim Keller, uh, He went to a place that I never would have ever thought of going. He went to 1 Corinthians 6. And this is what 1 Corinthians 6 says. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. You see, in the Bible, adultery is just one sin that falls into a group of sins that is ultimately called sexual immorality. And in this passage, which is the the Bible's most clear teaching on on a sexual ethic, Paul uses the example of a person who engages in sexual intimacy with a prostitute. I want to ask you, what actually happens when that occurs? What happens when when a man or a woman engages in sexual activity with a prostitute? Basically what is happening here is both people are engaging in sex with someone who isn't their spouse. That's what's happening. And that's why Paul brings in the marriage concept of two becoming one flesh. Paul is saying that sex is all about becoming one flesh. And in the process, he is showing us that sexual intercourse is something much greater than the physical act that our culture has devalued it into. That it is something far more significant than that which gets bannered around on television and the movies and books and streaming videos. Keller put it this way The Bible says sex was created to say to someone else, I belong completely and exclusively to you in every aspect of my being. Socially, economically, legally, emotionally, and spiritually. And that, brothers and sisters, that is what sex is inside of marriage. But you know what sex outside of marriage is? You know what sex outside of marriage says? This is what it says. It says, I just want your body. I just want to gain pleasure from you. I don't want commitment. I don't want to trust myself to you. I don't want to trust my possessions to you, or my emotions to you, or my future to you, or anything else to you. You see, sexual intimacy at its very root when it happens outside of marriage is the height of selfishness. And selfishness, brothers and sisters, is sin. Now I realize at this point, I've probably freaked out a lot of you. Uh, and let me tell you why. According to the Institute of Family Studies, 65% of evangelical unmarried adults are sexually active. Sixty. And what that tells me is in our church family, I'm talking to a lot of people who've got caught up in this stuff. Talking to a lot of people who who have fallen for for, uh, this hollow thing that our culture offers up that is is so incredibly uh, easy to get at. But folks, I, I tell you these things not to make you feel guilty. That's not why I'm up here. I'm not trying to, 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 to pour shame onto you. There, there's enough shame that's already going around. I'm telling you this stuff because I actually give a rip about you. Over these 20 years, I, I have, have dealt with men and women who have gotten themselves into all kinds of messes. Because of sex. And and behind them is just brokenness absolutely everywhere. And I want you to experience what it's like to fully give yourself freely to someone who fully gives themselves freely to you. That's the beauty of sex in a marriage. Because it's so much more than, than just this physical act. I, I mean, Kathy and I, when we got married, we were both virgins. How that happened, I have no idea. It wasn't for me not trying, okay? I mean, I couldn't find anybody who would want to be with me, all right? Kathy was the smartest one to say, no, we're not doing that, okay? So I'm not holding myself up as, as some great moral standard. But I'm here to tell you, you know, The greatest thing about our marriage is that she gives me everything. Everything. We share everything. She trusts me with everything. There were things early in our marriage, there were some things that that, that were going on in her life, some things that happened in in her life that that were hard. and, And she never told anybody about that stuff, but she told me. Well, just, that doesn't happen with someone you meet on Tinder. And that's where society has devalued this stuff too. So, so I'm here to say, you know what? Maybe you have, 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 have bought into what, what the culture offers. Maybe you're up here thinking, no, Mike just has absolutely no clue what's going on. And, and here's what I would say to you. We live in a culture where people say that they're actually open-minded. I'd challenge you, actually open your mind. Consider, perhaps, the Bible might be telling me the truth. Consider that, that, that culture actually might be lying to us. Open your mind a little bit. Ponder it. Don't fall for what culture just so easily offers up. And for those of you who have confessed your sins and received Jesus Christ as the Lord and Savior and who have, have fallen into this stuff, perhaps you've even dived into it, I want you to remember this. Look at 19 and 20 of First Corinthians again. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. You know what sticks out to me there? The thing that's that's so big to me is right there in the beginning of verse 20. For you were bought with a price. That is how incredibly valuable you are to God. God sees all the mess we created. Last time I checked, it says, "For, for while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He sees it all. You're not too far gone. Because you've fallen for this, that doesn't mean you're, you can't be redeemed, you can't be used by God. Because Jesus actually died for you. Remember that. So how do you resist these temptations? Look again at verses 8 to 10. You see, he is facing serious sexual temptation. This isn't just like a, a little bit of sexual temptation. This is like sexual temptation on steroids. I mean, she has got the, 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 the throttle totally to the firewall. She is, she is pushing hard against this guy. Okay? Now, she is pursuing him. How does he stop this? How does he keep from falling here? Does he possess some kind of superhuman self-control? Is that what he has? Is he able, through his own willpower, to keep this woman at bay? Is that what he's able to do? That is what many of us think when it comes to temptation. We think to ourselves, I can will myself out of this. If only I can gather up enough self control, I can beat this thing. But here's the problem self control never works. Never. You see, self control is what we use when we're conflicted. Let me explain. It's what we use when we haven't yet determined that which is really, really, really important to us. Let me explain. I am conflicted. There is a conflict that plays out in my life every single morning. And it's this. I have a desire to weigh 185 pounds. But at the same time, I have a desire to eat anything that I want whenever I want. Maybe some of you might have that same conflict in your life. So this is how it works for me. I wake up in the morning, I brush my teeth, I go to the bathroom and then I make my way to the scale. And I step on the scale and I get frustrated the instant that that stupid digital scale displays my weight. Very frustrated. And I say to myself, I'm going to control my eating today in order to lose weight. And so I'm really careful about what I eat at breakfast, I come in here. Uh, for work, I, I, I try to avoid Victoria's office because she's got peanut butter cups in there. Uh, Pastor Ben has uh, lifesavers in his office. All those pastries that you eat are frozen in the freezer right now. I avoid all of that stuff. And I do great with self-control until about 11.30. 11.30 comes, and all of a sudden, this little voice in my head says, You know what, Mike? You know, Marco down at Franco's, man, he makes some delicious pizza. And you can get two slices of pizza, a bag of barbecued Middlesworth chips that are car, or kettle cooked, and then you can, can take Diet Coke and regular Coke and mix it together so you don't feel too bad about yourself. And all you got to do is get in your car, drive like a half mile down the road, and you can, you can fulfill your desire, and on top of that, on the way back, you're passing 3 B. For five bucks, you can get a large peanut butter milkshake. And that's my desire. So in the morning, my desire is to weigh 185. At 1130, my desire is what? To eat anything that I want. And before I know it, I'm heading down the dairy street to feed my face. That's exactly how it works. Now, why does this happen? Why do I cave in so incredibly easy? Because I'm simply trying to suppress my will. That's what I'm trying to do. And what I really need to do is I need to change my will. That's what needs to happen. I need to change my heart. I need to redirect my desires so that my heart goes for something greater. You see, I really don't want to be 185 pounds, if I'm really honest. I'm conflicted. I I want to be 185 pounds, and I want to eat all that food. That, 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 That stopped working back when I was like 25 years old. And that's exactly what Joseph has done, folks. He wasn't conflicted. His love for God was far greater than his love for pleasure. And as I say these words, I am convicting myself. Because there are many times that my love for pleasure outweighs my love for God. And a lot of you are looking down right now because you probably agree with that. You see, did he have a desire for Potiphar's wife? Yeah. The dude's a guy. Come on. You got a woman coming on to you every single day, you're going to have a desire. There's not a a guy on the face of the planet that's not going to be tempted by Potiphar's wife. Because she just keeps coming and coming and coming and coming. Yes, he has a temptation for, his, for that wife. But Joseph's desire for God was so much greater. And it was his desire to please God and honor God that keeps all of the lesser desires in check. That's what, what, that's what actually bounds everything. And when we succumb to temptation, it's because... We love that which is tempting us more than we love anything else. That's what happens. That thing that tempts us at that moment is the most important thing in the world to us. And so if we want to flee from temptation, we need to reorder our hearts and point it to something far greater, far more lovely, far more satisfying than that which is tempting us. And as Christians, we have that something. It has a name. It's called Jesus. You know, when I first uh, introduced uh, Joseph as we've been working through this series, I told you that he prefigured Jesus. That that, that Joseph is is the one character in in Genesis who we we don't ever see him sinning. We know that he obviously sins. He's a human being, right? But we, we never really see him sinning. And, and, and we see that he's rejected by his family just like Jesus is rejected by his family. We see that he's betrayed just like Jesus is betrayed. Uh, we see that he suffers just like Jesus suffered and uh, and that he is tempted, just like Jesus was tempted. Remember Jesus, right after he was, w- was baptized, he goes out into the desert for 40 days and, and 40 nights. I think it's in, in the beginning of Luke is where the, the temptation is, is dealt with in detail. And at the end of the temptation, uh, the, the, the Luke, Luke basically says the greatest understatement in all the Bible says, and he was hungry. No doubt he was hungry. He's been not eating for 40 days. Of course he's hungry. And at that moment, at Jesus' weakest point, Satan shows up to tempt him. He tempts Jesus with food. He tempts Jesus to prove his identity. And he tempts Jesus with power. And against every one of those temptations, Jesus doesn't rely on his willpower. Rather, He relies on his love for God the Father and his desire to please him because in every response, Jesus goes back to the word of God. That's what he does. But the temptations don't stop there. In Hebrews 4, we're told that Jesus was tempted in every way but did not sin. So how did Jesus, who was not only fully God but also fully man, how did he deal with those temptations? He desired something greater than that which the temptation had to offer. And Hebrews 12 tells us what that desire was. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings to us so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus resists all of these temptations that you and I experience because his heart is set on something greater. That something greater was the perfecting of our faith. Jesus understood that he needed to live a completely holy life because you and I cannot live completely holy lives. Jesus understood that he had to take upon himself the sin of the world and pay the penalty for that sin because you and I are unable to pay that penalty. Jesus understood that, that he needed to be the one who reserve, reverses the curse of sin and death, that, that, that he is going to be the one who reigns in, in the new heaven and the new earth where all pain and brokenness is set aside. Jesus understood he had a higher a higher purpose, a higher desire that put all of the other desires in line. Do you want to resist temptation? Stop trying to do it on your own. Cast aside the lie that you can do this of your own willpower. Look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. Set your heart's desire actually upon Him. Choose Jesus and following Him above all things in your life. And and folks, this is a daily activity. I fail in this time and time again. I need to wake up every morning and say, Jesus, be the Lord of my life. Help me to love You more than sin. Help me to do that. Because in and of myself, I am incapable of that. And when we do that, when Jesus is our highest desire, all other desires fall into their proper place. And while it would be great to end here, folks, that's not the end of Joseph's encounter with Potiphar's wife. He does it all right. Jesus has God as his center, or I mean Joseph has God as the center of his life. His desire is to please God. He does everything right. He resists every temptation. And what happens to him? Potiphar's wife lies. The master believes his wife. And Joseph goes to prison. And many of us know exactly what that's like because we've tried to do everything right. We've tried to love God, tried to love others. We're generous, we serve, we pray, we read the Bible, we do all of those things. And bad stuff happens. People we love die. Cancer comes into the world. Our kids lose their minds. Our boss fires us. The people that we thought we could trust, we can't trust. And we're in this prison. And we're looking at God like, where in the world are you? you got to believe Joseph was thinking that exact thing. And then verse 21 shows up. Like the bright sun. But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. You see, God allowed bad things to happen in Joseph's life in the present so that God could do greater things in Joseph's life in the future. And as he languished in prison, unjustly condemned, he would have never expected that it would be from that prison that God would ultimately exalt him to be not number two in Potiphar's household, but to be number two in all of Egypt. That God would use him to rescue the nation of Egypt from famine and save his family at the same time. And the same was true for Jesus' life. Jesus did everything right. And he's still crucified. And on that brutal Friday, some 2,000 years ago, his friends could have never anticipated the empty grave was waiting for them on Sunday morning. And perhaps the Apostle Paul, who also knew great struggles, said it best in Romans 8, 18, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us. You see, folks, you can do everything right. You can resist and resist and resist and resist, and things can still go wrong. But as much as God is God, while you're serving in Potiphar's house, he is God while you were serving in Potiphar's prison. And you and I need to remember that. Because if life has not turned out the way that you've desired, know that God isn't done with your story. He's already written it. He knows what it looks like. We can look at this. We know what the end of the story is. We know how it plays out. We, we, we know about the famine, we know about getting thrown out or getting out of jail and, and, and everybody. Get, we know all of those things. But you and I don't know how our life is going to end. But I am telling you, there is a reason why Romans 8:28 says, "For all things work together for good, for those who love the Lord and are called according to His purposes." And We need to understand something, though. God's definition of good and our definition of good aren't necessarily the same. And last time I checked at the end of Hebrews 11, we find out that there was all of these faithful people who didn't ultimately get what they desired until they were standing in glory. So be encouraged. God's not done with you. He's not done with me. Make Jesus your greatest desire. Don't rely on willpower. Rely on the shed blood of the one who bought you with a price. Let's pray. Lord God, you are good. I thank you for my friends. I thank you for this time uh, that I could share with them. I pray, Lord, that your spirit would work deeply in their hearts and in mine. I pray for those who are hurting and wounded this day. I pray that you would bring healing to them, Heavenly Father. I pray that, uh, Lord, for those who've yet to come to faith in you, that today would be their day of salvation. Lord, that today that your spirit might draw them to yourself. And Lord, that they might recognize uh, their sin as we have, many of us have recognized our sin and may confess those sins and receive Jesus as Lord and Savior. God, give us uh, a great desire for you. Lord, so that all of the lesser desires will get in line. You are good and we love you. And it's through your son's name we pray. All God's people say amen stand with us, please.